the darkness between us. Dark Stories from the Uncanny Collective. Episode 4, Liar's Tale, by Paul Linghorn. I do have a confession to make. I'm not the easiest person to get on with. That's it. That's all. I hope you weren't expecting anything more. My family knows this. The few friends I have in this world know this. My three ex-husbands certainly know this. Although I'm sure the last one would have worked out if he hadn't died. Two divorces and a widower at the age of 33. One could say I'm getting a reputation. When I was 12, I was told quite firmly by my father that my greatest concern in life was to marry a man of importance. And in this endeavour, he would try his very best to help me. Many would think that that would mean arranging meetings with local landowners and their inbred sons, or cozying up with prominent doctors and lawyers and getting to know the youngest intakes. In fairness to him, he did do those things as well. Moving on. You could say my father poisoned me towards their entire sex and I wouldn't tell you you were wrong. He got me started on rather a rocky road. My first husband was a rebellion, someone I dared care for. Not someone I could say I loved, but I cared for. The closest thing little David came to owning was a small bakery in the town of Ditchling. The name is rather spot on. He was a bright young thing when we first met. Completely different to anything or anyone I was allowed to know. Cheeky. Funny. Respectful. When rumours of the bakery boy and I started to spread, my family, well, mainly my father, were outraged and more importantly, embarrassed. When I think of it, the things I could have used against my father to embarrass him further. Anyway... The rage of my parents was enough for me to abscond with little David, the bakery boy, at the age of 17, and we were married in a small church in Waxham with just two friends to bear witness. It would appear abject poverty and not really loving him made for bad bedfellows. Within a year and a half, he was as cynical and depressed as I was. Without the ying to one's yang, we were divorced. Plus, he was half a foot shorter than me and it made people stare. I was unskilled. Never worked and didn't particularly care for the farm life. I had no other option, so I crawled back on hands and knees to the family I'd hoped I'd left in the dust. I was shown through the house by a servant who treated me like a travelling salesman. I arrived in the dining room where my father was already sat like a king, looking down on a peasant who had shat in his breakfast. I bowed my head in shame. He took me again that night talking all the way through as if giving me pointers and how to keep a man. I was 19 and starting to get a bit old. I was barely in the family home a month before my father had arranged several courtships with other respectable men and their sons. At this point, I didn't mind the preening like a peacock and showing my wares. It was more having to converse with the lectury and pretending not to know that they were pretending to care about what I had to say. Hope that makes sense. After seven suitors had been, gone, and rejected, 
my father decided to choose for me. Tarquin Cavendish. Now there was a name. The Cavendish family had been doctors for generations and were now investing in steel mills, a little invention created by a man, obviously, named Carnegie from across the pond. The Cavendish family was set to become far richer than they already were, and so was I, for a time. They had me married off in the biggest church in the whitest dress with the largest congregation. <laughs> it was awful. The mentioning of bakeries was banned by the Cavendishes. Mentioning of any sort of marriage I had been a part of before this day was banned by everybody else. And after a laborious day of being talked at by hundreds of people, I settled down to the rest of my life with Tarquin. Tall, lean, charming, quite good-looking, actually. Smug, hateful and violent, with daddy issues all of his own. He never felt loved enough, which is apparently worse than being loved too much. His words. And I certainly didn't overcompensate for his lack of love as a child. In fact, I'm sure I was a bitter disappointment to him. I know that because he told me before he would hit me. This continued for years and never got better. The worst thing is I didn't care about the social embarrassment. I told people. I told people to the left of me. I told people to the right of me and they didn't care. Trying to divorce a Cavendish was out of the question. So said my father, his father, him, and any other man in my periphery. One night, I was so desperate. He fell asleep next to me and I couldn't face this life anymore. I took a knife from the kitchen, laid myself in a bathtub of water, ready to cut my wrists. But then I began to think how much wrong had been done unto me. I wasn't the one who deserved to die. He was. I made my way to the master bedroom, soaked from head to toe, and I plunged the knife deep down between his left shoulder blade and his heart. I'm sure you can guess which one I was aiming for. He sprang awake from the searing pain and took me out with a clear right hook. He broke my nose. They called me mad. But I got my divorce. That was six years of maddening torture. I was now 25 and being treated like a naughty four-year-old by an army of psychotherapists and doctors, which were not Cavendishes that may surprise you to know. I was left for almost five years without having to marry anyone. My father felt it appropriate after all the gossip about me had died down and, coincidentally, when the doctor's fees went up, that I should attempt normal life again. And, of course, I was now 29 and far too old to be married off to a bright young bachelor. Turns out the cutoff point is 24. Once you hit 25, you can be married off to someone older than your grandfather. Case in point, I met Winston St. Charles for half an hour before the hunched 82-year-old hobbled out on his cane saying to my father, She would do. I was 30 years old when the marriage was officiated. A small ceremony, in a much smaller church than the last, with many glaring eyes made my way. The reasons for the marriage were obvious, but no one looked at my father the way they looked at me. Winston was ex-military, quite high up and from a steady stream of aristocratic blood. He, however, never had children and his last wife had died some months before his first visit to me. 
His home was a stately manor house looked after by several servants. After a year had passed, many of the servants had taken other jobs working for families far from here. I was not well liked. That much was obvious. But a couple of the servants had stuck by Winston and they would occasionally help me when I demanded it. Winston would often use his cane to call for attention, clapping the foot of it against the wooden floor. A noise that I would slowly associate with servitude. He had a library dedicated to dusty old tomes and books written in what he called dead languages. He would spend all of his time poring over these books, speaking them aloud and scrawling grand intricate symbols into notebooks and the blackboard that he kept in his study. When you heard the clap of the cane, it would often resonate from that study. Some days, I would not see him at all. Servants would often leave food outside the door of his study, we would only know he was alive by the empty plates and wine goblets left outside. He left me alone to my own devices. It was an arrangement that was agreeable to me. However, he did demand that I slept in the same bed as him. I guess it gave him comfort to know someone else was there. One night, he came to bed and he was shaking and clearly agitated. I asked him if he felt well. He lay himself down slowly and placed his head upon the pillow and spoke to me in a language I, I didn't recognise. Zabathides, Skalme, Zeras. I asked him what he said, and he said again, Zabathides, Skalme, Zeras. urge called to me to hurt him seriously hurt him suddenly and before my eyes Tarquin Cavendish lay in the bed in Winston's place and I ran screaming from the house I was fetched back in the middle of the night by a tired servant I tried to explain to him what had happened but it all fell on deaf ears I tried to rest in one of the many spare rooms, but I couldn't find sleep that night. In the early hours of the morning, before light had begun to creep into the house, I made my way to Winston's study. I swung open the door and peered inside. The darkness that lay inside was blinding. Yet a strip of light found its way, spreading across his blackboard, highlighting an intricate symbol drawn by his own hand. It was a pentagram with tentacles sprouting from its corners and four horns each protruding from its five points, with the head of a dragon, a horse and a goat surrounding its image looking in. Beneath the image was the word Zabathides, scrawled in a far less tamed hand than what drew the image. I felt a pressure behind my eyes that made me cry out in pain. I could not stand to look at the image for a moment longer than I had to and pulled myself back into the corridor, slamming the door to let it fester. The noise formed from my screaming and the slamming of doors woke the household, and for the rest of the day, I was under the strict supervision of Winston's maid. I pondered over what I had seen all day long, trying to sneak another look at the symbol in the study, but every time I approached I was stopped by the maid or one of his butlers. The concern was etched on the faces of the servants as well, but they knew their place and they refused to intervene in their master's affairs. 
When the house was at its most quiet was when you could hear Winston in the study, chattering away unknown words as if in conversation with another. But no one did anything. They were all too afraid. That night, I dreamt I was back in the place where I married Winston. I stood at the back of the chapel looking upon the altar where we exchanged our vows. Cloaked figures stood with their backs to me. Their gaze was held by a figure sat on a chair, covered with a sheet. I wanted to run, but I felt my feet compelling me forward towards the figure which began to writhe as I got closer to it. Its arms stretching out, reaching for me. Just before I reached it and I thought its arms would reach out and grab me, everything fell into darkness. And I awoke. The next day the maid took the bull by the horns, knocking on his door and entering. I approached from behind her as she asked whether she should prepare two beds for him and another for me, or one bed to welcome me back in. He sat behind his desk, staring at the maid in a state of astonishment for disturbing him. And the room was in disarray, with books flung across furniture and splayed out across the floor. The image on the blackboard had changed. The same pentagram, but now the three beasts were staring out at the viewer, and it had been transposed with a far untidier hand, as though drawn while shaking. She is my wife, isn't she? he asked unscrupulously. Looking around at the mess, the maid inquired, Shall I clean again? Yes, came his reply. I was back in the bedroom, staring at the door waiting for him to enter. Every second waiting filled me with a growing dread until the door creaked open and in he stepped, slowly but assuredly. He lowered himself onto the bed, looking very pleased with himself. I asked, is everything well? And he turned to me and said, Zabathides, Skalme, Zeras. I stepped back as he took the form of my father. I grabbed at my mouth to keep from screaming and I left the room. As I heard him chuckle behind me, I came down into the kitchen and ran myself some water and knocked it back quickly. Then I heard the clapping of the cane upon the floorboards. I found myself taking up the knife and darting towards the room. I stormed in and I plunged it down towards his head. He grabbed at my forearm trying to resist me until the knife slowly embedded further and further into his skull. The darkness between us was created by the Uncanny Collective. Liar's Tale was written by Paul Linghorn and starred Sarah Lynham. Theme music by Nick Samuel. 
Sound recorded, mixed and produced by Connor Allen and Sarah Lynham. Uncanny Collective are Connor Allen, Steve Fitzgerald, Paul Linghorn and Sarah Lynham. Please visit uncannycollective.co.uk for information about upcoming shows and events. To find us on social media, follow the links in the description below. The Darkness Between Us is supported by Horrified. Check out their website at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk.